If you had the chance, would you change the world? Welcome. I am your host, Ebony Gustav, and this is Cooperative Journal, where I interview mutual aid initiatives and cooperatives from around the world who are creating alternatives to our current economic system. East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, or EBPREC, is based in the East Bay of California. They facilitate Black, Indigenous, people of color, and allied communities to cooperatively organize, finance, purchase, occupy, and steward properties, taking them permanently off of the market. Residents, investors, community members, and EBPREC staff then come together to co-own and co-steward the property. This allows a shift towards community-controlled assets in a community that has largely been disinvested from and has had assets taken away from them, and it empowers them to be ecologically, emotionally, spiritually, culturally, and economically restorative and regenerative. In this episode, I speak with Executive Director Noni Session about how EBPREC is garnering support to shift real estate ownership from extractive developers into the hands of the BIPOC community in Oakland and the East Bay. She shares the difference between a permanent real estate co-op and a land trust, ancestral remembrance of cooperative ownership, how they got the first group of people to invest in their dream, their governance structure and multi-stakeholder model, prioritizing inclusivity and accessibility to individual investors, transparency of investment risk and how they mitigate it, and their exciting new venture, which is a historic Black arts venue that they've acquired for Black artists and small businesses at 50% of market rate. Hello, Noni. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. I'm really looking forward to learning about how you co-created this model to allow for collective ownership of real estate and taking it permanently off of the market. So can you please share what East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative is and what inspired its creation? Um, the core of that, the root of that is the Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, the PREC which is really about, um, uh, it's in response to the loss and the dispossession among black and frontline community members, black indigenous and frontline community members of, of wealth, of assets, particularly through the trope and the actual concrete thing, land, right? Land and housing in this case in industrializing economies um, so the permanent real estate cooperative, the permanent part of it is about um, employing technical strategies around capital, um, real estate investment to create permanent, um, cooperatively owned, cooperatively governed and affordable assets for black and brown communities to rebuild their future after 50 years of essentially relentless and, and, and more recently rapid racialized displacement and dispossession. 
So the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative is really meant to be a tool embodied through a Black-led, people of color, multi-stakeholder cooperative that supports everyday people to organize themselves, to fundraise for, and to purchase and cooperatively govern and long-term asset manage land and housing in Oakland and the East Bay. And we also have an underlying learning and teaching mission in that our, our work is, we consider it a living lab and we collect up all of our lessons, all of our talks, all of our learnings so that we can give that to as many people in as many places as possible. So not only can this scale, it can become a new part of the culture and a new part of the economy that really supports us getting to a place where the 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 1% doesn't shrink in meaning less and less of us have access to anything that looks like it has a capacity to support life like real life where we're not all on the ground with bloody knuckles scraping and scrabbling and of course that means destroying one another in the process so um that was a little elaborate but it's really the underlying vision that we have for our future Thank you. Yeah, I understand how important it is, especially in BIPOC communities, for people to have land ownership, especially as, you know, so in the past hundred years, so much black owned land has been taken away that only 1% of the total amount of farmers are actually um, black. And so, like, that's just one example of how the the wealth is being shifted and taken away from black communities. So this is so important that you're doing this work. And I know that land trusts are also a way for communities to have ownership over land and to use it to build affordable housing and um, create community gardens as well. And so what is the main difference between permanent real estate cooperative housing co-op and a land trust? Well, um, I want to say, first of all, that we are definitely guided, inspired, and instructed by the land trust movement. Um, East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative and the Permanent Real Estate Cooperative model in general is looking across all of the sectors that have that, that intersect at the, the nexus of Black folks owning or losing land and pulling some of the best um, and most effective strategies from those fields. So we look at movement building. Um, we look to movement building for how we bring our frontline communities into control and also how we organize high net worth capital holders. We look at the investment field for how we bring in low interest, um, no strings attached, transformative capital at interest rates that really mean that we're not spending our whole livelihood servicing debt. Um, we look at um, housing cooperatives for how we support 
our, our future resident owners with building out their governance structures, their ethical and moral commitments to one another, their vision for their community together. Um, we look at the worker owner cooperative for how we really rethink and retune how we share power, not only within our organization, but as a, as a, as a DNA model for how we help other people build their cooperative organizations that, that, that we won't be able to make a change if we don't remain conscious of and, and actively and radically try to break out of these learned entrenched hierarchical Western power practices. And then lastly, in relationship to your question, we look at the land trust field for how to protect land in, into perpetuity, right? In the sense that dispossession means that every generation, and, and not in 100 years, since emancipation, since being drugged from our own native shores, our land, to this place where we then became by default a landless people and post-emancipation having collectively purchased within 25 years of emancipation, hundreds of hectares of land on the North Carolina coast and then being within the, the next hundred years judicially and extrajudicially dispossessed of that land. Implied in there, it's not just white men marauding um, on horses taking that land. We're talking about legal processes that dispossessed us, right? Mm -hmm. So we look to the land trust movement to, to, to give us guidance on how to protect land into perpetuity, not only to create permanence and stability for frontline communities, but also to give them the time and the space that every human culture needs to rebuild and plan for their existence, for their survival. There are black people in the future, but without land, that is under great question, right? And so the difference between East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative and the community of land trust is one that um, our, our land protections fall under our bylaws. Um, Two, that unlike the nonprofit structure of the community land trust, as a California cooperative corporation, we sell securities, meaning we, um, we bring in investment dollars that allows us to buy the land and then we pay our investors back at 1.5% return over a five-year term, which means you lower the cost of land for frontline communities by 40%. And that takes us back to servicing our community instead of debt. Um, the other difference is that we collectively govern all of the land and housing together through voting structures that instead of cloistering power among executive directors and boards, which are often 98% of boards are all white. Our board is structured to reserve a seat for our Native American seat, for our Black Oak our Black Oaklander seat, for our housing justice seat, and for our resident owner seat. And then we have a governance director, a treasurer, and a secretary. So we are trying to structurally maintain power among the people who we say we serve, as opposed to, to, to cloistering it among what are often white executive directors and white boards that act on our behalf, instead of us having the sovereignty, the self-determination, the power to act for ourselves, among ourselves. Mm. Yes. So it's really teaching people how to create collective agency, too, and not just a question around 
accessing land or affordable housing, which I know land trusts really focus on, but it's really taking like a holistic view of how people can gain ownership in other aspects of their lives too. Yeah, absolutely. Dispossession is not just the tangible thing of the currency, which we know in fact is actually imaginary pieces of paper, fiat currency, not backed up by gold or silver and land, which is a real thing, i.e. real estate, um, but also the intangibles, network relationships, um, involvement in the conversation, um, organizational practices and structures, um, so many so-called soft things that are actually the hinge upon which we have lost so much in the past and potentially in the future, right? If you're if you're taking a predatory loan, not it's not because you want to, it's because you don't even know the darn thing is predatory. But what if you had a community of people that had already busted out that 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 system and you're like, no guy, there's no way I'll be buying that mortgage from you because because get it right. Mortgages are products, OK, that are being sold to people who are unassuming and victims of um, of leveraging our futures on the basis of the cost of capital. So I completely agree. And so how did you. How did you get, how'd you introduce the average Oaklander into this model? How did you get them to invest in this? Because like what you were saying earlier before we started the interview, um, you guys are trying to embody nowness in every pro in every step of the process of gaining ownership. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just curious how you are doing that how it has gained acceptance in the field is that what you're yeah asking? when you guys initially came up with this idea how did you drive that um initial group of people to start becoming members well you know um we all stand on the shoulders of giants first of all right and um, the universe, you know, is 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 just a holding container for the the dissipation and the gathering of certain intentions of these human spirits driving these bodies in the world, right? And so, first of all, I'd say that this is the moment for cooperatives to reemerge as a solution to this increasingly these increasingly dank and terrifying conditions we're experiencing around the world, right? So that's number one. Um, number two is that um, there is work that preceded the existence of EBPREC. As I mentioned, all um, long before we were pulled away from our shores and then directly after emancipation, we were in cooperatives. Those were legal cooperative owning bodies that own land that, of course, uh, under a collective amnesia, a destruction of records and history has disappeared. Um, we also know, and this, this actually was something I learned as I moved into the cooperative movement, that our civil rights leaders, um, and if anyone's looking for an amazing resource, please check out Collective Courage by Jessica Gordon Nimhard, which is the history of Black cooperatives in the United States. 
very eye-opening. And we know that folks like Fannie Lou Hamer and W.E.B. Du Bois were cooperators first and then civil rights leaders, right? That the principles of the cooperative movement as, as really brought to the fore um, in Mondragon, Spain, who was a small community that was living in such deep poverty and at this point has their 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 dollar is not even doesn't even move when the euro moves they have universities grocery stores schools roads right um that that those folks really laid out for us the liberatory possibilities in the cooperative model and in cooperative and collective economics every economy before the capitalist economy has been an 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 an, an embodiment of cooperative economics even the capitalist capitalist economy that tells us this fictional story about individual achievement, if you're very clear around how the stock market works, around how the corporation works, around how the hedge fund works, those are collectives, collectives of, of people moving forward and agreed upon intention through collective and, and economic action. Even the bad folks have solidarity economic solidarity specifically, right? Mm -hmm. so, that, so there's nothing new about it. What is new is our, aware, our awareness and technical access to it as a tool of our own liberation. And so um, in, in Oakland, um, given that we have the history of the Black Panthers and the, 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 the survival programs, which again are collective economic action, there's a spirit that was always looking toward how we could bring that back into our grasp. But one thing that's always necessary for collective action are resources that are not relentlessly and constantly interfered with by our municipality, by other economic actors. You gotta understand this thing called racism. That's, that's, that's economic competition. That is economic competition, the disintegration of our families and our communities through through a commodified music program, through um, neglecting our schools. That's an act of economic competition. So the, the key, every Black person knows that if we just had the resources, we have a vision for ourselves. And so the key was, was to find a pathway into accumulating resources that at least for the moment could not be interfered with as we move toward adding assets and value to the staff. Um, and, and also the other key was, given that we've had so many folks pass through our communities with all the stories and all the promises and all the commands, you know, and they leave with their butcher paper and then you never see them again, or, or you see a new executive director appointed or one person getting a position and you're still left holding your bag of like hunger and underemployment and poor housing and poor schools. Why would you believe yet another organization that says we're here to stack dollars for community to do something that that contributes to our advancement. Why would you believe that? Like, well, what's different about y'all than is than this anything that's happened in the last hundred years? And so I think we we accepted that as the reality in which we were trying to move forward our first project, and so we we went to the people who still had the faith. <laughs> 
We went to the folks who wanted to go into their bank account, take $1,000 out of their bank account and give it to us on the basis of trust, on the basis of what we promised, on the basis of what they could see. We protected them in, our, in the ways we protected them in our bylaws. And that let us buy our first apartment building called Co-op 789. And what we knew, what I knew was that to really get folks on board, we had to, as my daddy used to say, I can show you better than I can tell you. Mm -hmm. And so what we knew is that we had to show our intention, right? While we talked about our intention with high net worth individuals, we knew with our frontline community, we have to show our intention. And I tell you, we're on our third project. We've moved over $8 million in assets. We're about to buy um, a black arts venue on 7th Street and give it to black artists. And I tell you until today, we are still convincing people of our verity, of our intention, of our love for black and brown folks and our absolute radical commitment to making sure those assets are held with us forever and are in the hands of black and brown people. Until today, we are still doing the work of, of of, of full adoption for our frontline communities. Mm. There's so much to make, to, to shake our faith. There's so much to make us not believe. Even as I was telling you before the interview, even in our messiness, even in our on the groundness, even in our transparency, until today, and I guarantee you for the next 20 years, we'll still be doing that work, one project at a time, demonstrating our commitment to um, a Black economy and a Black cooperative economy. Mm, yeah. Hmm. It's all about the commitment and consistency, because once people start to see a pattern that you're fulfilling what you say you're going to do and also the fact that you look like the people instead of like someone from and you're you've been in Oakland you your family has been in Oakland for generations so it's like you're invested in that community and as long as you continue doing that more people will get on board but there's also that polarity that people are always dealing with with like just their everyday life and how this system that's so entrenched yeah. and so powerful is conflicting with these, um, what may seem like dreamy ideas. Yeah. Yes, for sure. I mean, listen, we're, we're living in a, a really tough moment for humans in general, let alone descendants of the African diaspora. Mm. Anti-blackness is the foundation upon which capitalist economic competition is built. It is structured for us to betray ourselves and one another on a daily, minute by minute basis. Mm -hmm. It is hard to keep the faith when your neurology tells you in order to survive the day, you must be suspicious of all interlocutors, especially the dark ones. Yeah, it's definitely a psychological thing too. And that's like generations of trauma that we now have to unpack and unlearn. And so like you said, it's gonna take decades of work. Um, but it's amazing that you at least found a core group of people three times where they trusted in the vision. And, and it's a struggle. It's a struggle. There's every year we bring in a conflict mediator 
to help us move to the next cycle, the next arc. Mm. It, this is not for the faint of heart. This is, this, is, this is the real struggle. But this is where I really thought that collective economic action, the principles of cooperatives are gonna help replace the ritual structures we lost through slavery, Jim Crow, commodification, um, mm. all of those things, right? Because everyone needs a rule set, right? But we, we can't just, we can't just turn toward Western um, Judeo-Christian rule sets because they're not designed for us. Mm -hmm. In fact, they are designed specifically as against us. Mm -hmm. And so the, the cooperative ethics have been the clearest pathway I've seen as a cultural anthropologist for hanging a Black cultural hat on a hook that can really take us forward together that really both has the spaciousness and the clarity to retune our commitments, ethical, moral, structural, economic to one another. Hmm. Yes, because like you mentioned earlier in Jessica's book, Collective Courage, like working cooperatively is something that our ancestors did. And even before being enslaved and coming to America and building solidarity, when like all the opposing forces were against them, we were doing that in Africa as well. And so I think introducing people to mutual aid and cooperative economics is a sense of remembrance. And Absolutely. once people get into those models, they're like, oh yeah, this feels right because it's inherent. And, and if you stop and take a minute and think about the word remembering, right and it, it it is the reassembly of the body mm. right the arm that was amputated is brought back the finger that was twisted behind you and broken is straightened again mm. we have to put ourselves back together one member of our community at a time that means one vulnerability at a time that means one betrayal at a time I mean, like, literally, I'm, I don't want to cry on your podcast, but it is that kind of pain and, and vulnerability over and over again that we have to submit ourselves to in order to put ourselves back together from this process that is constantly at every turn attempting to disassemble us through new through poisoning our food supply through poisoning our water supply through withholding dignified labor through withholding dignified housing mm. yeah yeah, it's really has people mentally, spiritually, and physically discombobulated. Yes, for sure, for <laughs> sure. Uh, and I know that you also had support from two groups to help EB Prec launch. Can you speak on who those groups were and maybe what their role was? Yeah. Um, two organizations that without them, um, you know, we just all still be wandering around here trying to figure out what's our next best, best step. And one is the People of Color Sustainable Housing Network. Um, and they really looked around and saw that, 
even as the population in Oakland was booming, as a so-called um, diversity was 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 expanding, you know, we we're getting like engineers and circus people and metal workers and dancers. Black faces were not to be seen among that expansion. We were not being housed. We were not being included in collectives. And we were definitely not accessing the capital flowing into our community for revitalization. And so People of Color Sustainable Housing Network was looking for a way to create a legal holding container where Black folks could collectively hold land together in a radical, nonviolent manner, non-hierarchical manner. And at the same time, there was this lovely visionary over at Sustainable Economies Law Center, Janelle Orsi, who was wondering the same thing. Um, and Janelle has a habit of starting to, to create systems change in anticipation of the social change. Um, and over at CELP, Sustainable Economies Law Center, they changed the critical securities law in preparation for some imaginary future. You got to think. Black folks are in the future. What will they need, right? They changed this law um, called AB 816, which created a um, an exemption in a California securities law, where before that point, a non-accredited investor, that is a person with a net worth of a million dollars or less, um, could only invest up to $350,350 in a cooperative enterprise. They raised the cap to $1,000 which means that regular everyday people, you gather together four, 400 of them, you've got a $400,000 down payment for a $2 million property, which means you don't have to wait for a profit seeking um, builder to tell you the future of your community. You make a choice for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is one thing that has very, been very radical about self-incubation tour to, of EB Prec is them giving away their jewels for free. So at the time and still now, they had a bi-monthly cafe called Legal Cafe, where folks who were looking to engage in regenerative, cooperative, radical economic activity, they gave them free legal advice in an ongoing manner. Potion, People of Color Sustainable Housing Network, attended one of their cafes, and they found that they were asking the same question. And so they agreed to spend time writing bylaws for this imaginary future holding container. Like, well, let's, let's, let's set it up so nobody can capture it and take it away from the people most concerned with it. Um, and at a certain point, about a year into their bylaws writing, myself and three or four of the other people who turned out to be the founding staff collective showed up to one of their community advisory councils and were like, oh, wow, this is, this is possible. We're going to volunteer. So we volunteered for half a year before we raised our first um, staff budget from just soft calling people who are our friends. And we launched our first staff collective with a $36,000 budget, but we had already been working for free for half a year because each of us said, this is something that can change the world and we mustn't wait for someone to affirm us with payment to make this yeah. real, right? And so, you know, when people ask, how can we do it? I often tell them that, that I recognize the privilege that some of us had to be able to give away our labor for free but the thing is, we have to work toward the future we see for ourselves before someone affirms us with capital. 
once you're dependent on the capital, it constrains the creative power that you can assert for yourself. You assert that creative power first, often capital will follow you later. You let your vision be the lead. Yes. Hmm. That is so true. People are usually waiting for the perfect grant or the perfect funder to come along. And what I love about cooperatives and mutual aid initiatives is that you don't have to wait because we have collective power. We have collective buying power. It's just a matter of organizing people to do it. But we don't have to wait because it's already available to us. And um, I know that you guys also have different stakeholders within the cooperative. Can you speak about who those stakeholders are? And because that's core to sustaining the funding for EB Prep. No um, the core stakeholders, yes. Well, we have four owner categories. Um, and uh, they, they sort of really constitute the, the different um, um, decision makers that we want to prioritize inside of the cooperative. So our core, our, our most important group of people and our, will be, always be our smallest group of people are our resident owners. Those are the folks who ultimately we execute a, a, a capital campaign plan with and acquire a piece of land or housing and um, support them in building out their cooperative structures and um, um, long-term asset manage their land and housing with them. Um, they vote on all of the seats and many of the decisions inside of the co-op. Um, they even elect their own director to the board. Um, our next uh, most important group are our community owners. Um, and they are our sort of check and balance, our, our governance mechanism. They vote on all of the seats inside of the board, as well as vote on certain decisions that we make in the co-op, um, including um, certain large purchases. Um, but we also bring to our community owners um, as sort of advisory as opposed to voting, many of the small, gritty details, quandaries, questions we have. So we do a monthly community owner circle where we update on the projects. We really get very transparent about walls that we're hitting. Um, we talk about our wins and fails for organizing because we are getting our bumps and bruises um, attempting to organize folks, right? That's such an anomalous term. It can be so many different things. So. We bring that to our community owners on a regular basis. Um, and often much of our education events happen um, in service to our community owners continuing to be in the conversation, giving them advice and supporting them on their own real estate projects that they may not be able to undertake with EBPREC that we may not have the capacity for. Um, and they really often are our champions, particularly um, for our first project. But um, each time we start a new project, they are our champions getting the word out that EBPREC is embarking on the next project. Um, and then there are our investor owners who we offer the least control um, because we wanna make it very clear that your access to capital. So by the way, you can be all four of these things. 
right? You can be a community owner and investor owner. It's just a separate process that you move through, right? But we want to clarify that investment doesn't automatically give you power. Investment is about your willingness to contribute to a vision or a mission in the community. So our investor owners only have a vote on the finance director. And, but they are the ones who give us the flexibility to, to move very quickly on projects, bring the cost of projects down. And really they, their, their, their trust in us serves as verity for the other capital we bring in, right? So the, the higher number of investor owners we have, the more we can demonstrate to mission aligned lenders, to other investors, that there are lots of people behind this vision that we're here to stay and that our accountability is very clear. Um, and then our final category of owners is the staff owner. That's me, that's Ojan, that's Shira, that's Annie, that's B, that's Scott. And um, the board delegates most of the power to the staff owners, and we are stewards of the collective EBPREC vision. So um, we can be removed by the board, we can be removed by a larger community owner vote if they're dissatisfied with the, the quality of work that we're undertaking on their behalf, um, if they're not happy with our transparency. So we're really trying to create a system although we know all systems can be gained, a system that is transparent enough for um, the, 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 the brave hearted to, to delve in and really create some control and some transparency, so. Hmm, that's interesting. There's a lot of moving parts um, and influences in the project and so, for resident and community, so resident owners actually have ownership within the housing cooperative, but community members may not. Like, how do you, I guess, make that can distinction you, between you, the two? Can you ask me that? Can you ask that question again? Yeah. So you said that you teach community members how to bring their own visions to life in case EB Prep doesn't have the capacity to take them in as, I guess, resident owners. And so I'm wondering, how do you choose between the two? Like, what if there is a community member that wants to be a resident owner? How do you know who gets priority? Yeah, it's not really a choice. Um, the way that we're learning that the real estate market works, it's often opportunity, right? So at any given time, we are chatting with three or four or one or 10 different, um, what we call them organizing groups who are trying to find something that is um, not being sold so quickly that we don't have time to raise capital for it. That is mission aligned with how EBPREC prioritizes um, where it will put its energy for a capital campaign that um, falls in alignment with where we know maybe if we have some, some prospects on some capital, but that capital may wanna do a certain thing. Like for example, our current project, we've brought in a lot of uh, capital and investors who are interested in investing in an arts, a black arts project, right? So what happens is it just becomes this sort of like, if you imagine, um, sort of like one group sort of having a few of the elements and another group having a few of the different elements. And at a certain point, it turns out 
Well, now this group has raised $300,000 in down payment. We've had a conversation with this Mission to Line Bank who was interested in this project. The interest rate is at the right time. Their capacity to pay but keep it affordable lines up with the pro forma that we train them on, right? So all the groups would get training on. We've, we've built this amazing tool. It's almost like a plug and play pro forma that allows grassroots organizations to vet and test the the economic feasibility of their own projects, right? And so all of the folks are getting these resources from us or as many as is possible, feasible. Some folks are in such a nascent stage that instead of talking to our finance director, Ojan, about the pro forma, they're sent to me and I'm talking to them about their project plan and giving them some feedback and they're going back to work on it. Um, maybe we're connecting them with other groups who have similar interests, right? So it's, it's people ask, that's a typical question. How do we choose? It's almost not a choice. It's almost like which deal lives a long enough life to buy and move it forward into asset management. And most real estate deals fall through because capital, because clarity, because timing, right? And so we do a lot of our work, like we try to build pre relationships where sometimes we can get, get a line on a project before it goes on the market. Maybe we make an agreement with the seller to give us six months to see if we can raise the capital. Maybe the resident owner groups has already, um, the future resident owner group has already raised the down payment and it's just a matter of plugging it into the pro forma and making an offer, you know? So choice, choice makes it seem this is one of the challenges, as we were talking about earlier, about um, the providing resources for people now when they need it. This is one of the, the, the real dilemmas of, of, of playing around in the real estate market and then calling yourself a justice-based organization, right? It's not a standard kind of um, equity-based process where it's like, if you show up with these seven um, objective objects, then that automatically qualifies you to move to the next stage. This is a very opportunistic field and you are always on some kind of time frame limitation or some kind of playing field with other economic actors who are working with a whole different rule set than our rule set. Right. So we, we, we've always got two or three or four projects in the pipeline and we never really know which one is going to reach completion. Mm. And all of the stakeholders only put in a thousand dollars or do the investor ones put in more? Uh, no. Um, the only folks who put in actual capital are are the investors. Okay. Community owners, it's a $5, $10 dues, $10 a week, a month, or a year, whatever, whatever works for you, right? This is really about inclusion, not capital. Mm -hmm. Obviously, staff owners are sweat equity, and then um, resident owners, there is no buy-in for our resident owners. What it is, mm -hmm. is the the, the raising the capital, the, the building out the vision, making the commitments to really govern nonviolently, to support our community through that purchase, right? And so it's only the investors who invest um, $1,000 shares. And so when we first came out of the box, AB816 allowed us to sell one share at a time. 
And for our first two projects, we sold 300 shares one at a time. We are now the first cooperative ever to write our own SEC application and be approved to sell federal securities. And so now we are in a direct public offering campaign that allows us to raise up to $50 million over the next four years. We're Oakland's first land and housing solidarity fund. And instead of paying a consultant $30,000 to do this in partnership with Sustainable Economies Law Center, we wrote our own application. It took us a year, but we did it, right? And what that means is the next organization who wants to do it, it's gonna be one step easier for them because we all stand on the shoulders of giants. And if we keep our processes and the gritty things that we had to go through to get there a secret, then there's nothing for us to stand on. There's no future for us. Wow, congratulations on that. That's incredible because now you can just have like a handful of investors to do multiple projects. Um, because would they, so that would increase the amount of money that they would put in at one time, right? It, it go, if you are a, a daily regular human being like myself, we are grateful for your $1,000 investment. Even if you have to pay that investment over five years, if you need to pay us $100 a month, we don't care. We will take it because the key is control that we invest in our own future. However, now that we're approved to sell federal securities in more than 14 states, we can take as you can buy as many shares as you want. And mm. so for our current project, which is a $5 million project, Although we've sold um, uh, about a million dollars in um, um, community investments to, to, to complete the $5 million capital stack, we've sold about 300,000 of those in individual investments and about 700,000 of those in foundation donor advised fund investments. So yes, it does mean that we can accelerate our project building much more quickly, but we it is important for us to stay connected with our roots that each individual that invests, those, those are the numbers that matter. Those are the people who are standing behind the project and stating that my $1,000 means something, the future of my community means something. So um, we appreciate our foundation investors um, and the foundation investors are only, only there, only interested in this project because of all of the individuals that have chosen to stand behind the project. Mm, yeah, right. Once they see that there's a movement of people that are buying into it and see value in it, then they're like, okay, exactly. maybe this could be something that's sustainable. That's exactly right. So what would you say are the risks for investors when buying into uh, one of these properties? Well, um, we build out our performance um, and performance are a spreadsheet that basically projects what the costs are, how the money's going to be used and when the project starts to be able to pay back the money. Okay. So we do build out very careful performance that clearly demonstrate according to our assumptions that the, the money Lend, lent to us, invested in us by investors can be paid back in the time frame that we promise, which is five to 10 years, right? However, all investments are a risk. 
we could uh, all of a sudden have a 100% vacancy rate. We could, you know, this current project is on the floodplain in West Oakland, right? We're not expecting the floodplain to rise for about 75 years, and we will have paid back the investment before then. But we're, you can look all over the world and see that what you expect is, it, you, you know, that, that, that's anything is possible right now. We could um, we could have like some kind of roof cave-in. Now, obviously, we've done all of our due diligence. We're doing retrofitting with our with from within our construction budget, all of those things. But all investments are risky, and so we have two sort of stop gaps for that. One is when we talk about the 1.5% return on your investment, we are required by the SEC to clarify that is a projected return, right? And once we reach the five-year window for which we have clear um, numbers that demonstrate we can pay you back, we also reserve that at that five-year point, if it turns out that it would hurt the co-op to give you your capital back, we offer you a five-year promissory note, which means we will pay your investment back over the next five years. So a promissory note turns it from an investment into a loan for which you continue to accrue and be entitled to interest for your initial investment, right? Mm. Um, so those are the ways that we try to mitigate risk while being clear that all investments are a risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So not making anything a guarantee in the written language with the investors, um, I guess, doesn't hold you liable. It does. It does. But there's a there's a the way that debt works in the United States is there's a there's a, a prioritized line of people who get paid back. And as we know, corporations such as the the bank, uh, the the program related investment, in, and I'm speaking right now of Esther's. Each project, its stack, its line of people are going to be different, right? So for seven, eight, nine, the investors are first in line, but for Esther's Orbit Room, SF Foundation is actually first in line, right? Mm. Um, because of the way that they do their program-related investment loans. And so what that means is it's not that in the, in the circular, in the offering circular, we, we, there's no language to make sure that we're not legally obligated. It's the nature of how um, investment works in the United States that we're not allowed to promise the return because investments are risky. Mm -hmm. um, we do actually, so when you do this like 100 page application to the SEC, you spend a good 60 pages of it laying out what are the ways that your organization mitigates risk. They talk, we talk about our leadership, we talk about the way we structure our projects, we talk about the way we do governance. So to even invest, um, you, our our investors are required, I'm gonna drop you this link because actually it's important that you put this link into your your show notes um, by SEC law, we're required. So I'm pulling it up right now. 
Um, you, you cannot even invest with us until you affirm that you have read your, the offering circular because of SEC um, obligation to protect investors in the United States, right? Mm. And so that offering circular, um, which is connected to a longer document if you choose, lays out what your risks are and the ways that your risk has been mitigated by the entity East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. Mm. And so I'm going to give you the offering statement. So I'm going to give you the invest page, but also the offering statement, which um, um, has to be uh, paired with uh, all of your statements about our DPO, which is what it's called. It's called a direct public offering, um, which mm -hmm. means selling direct investment to folks who are interested. Um, and so there at that address, Thank you. you can read the offering. And then I'm just gonna give you a little background on our current project so that you can see how we're really um, trying to bring light to the ways that we can reinvest our com our communities nationwide. Um, yes. So yes. Amazing. Thank you so much. Well, mm -hmm. since you already brought it up, um, what is this commercial mixed use space that you guys are currently working on? Oh yeah. Well, it's called the Esther's Orbit Room Cultural Revival Project. And we are purchasing a historic black arts venue um, on um, the 7th Street corridor in West Oakland, which is a corridor that's been subject to multiple cycles of municipal removal, neglect, eminent domain, to the point where our West Oaklanders are really left without resources, except resources that are brought in from the outside. And often you know how access to those resources becomes ordered, and we're often at the end of the line. Um, and so we believe, we know for a fact that on corridors, particularly in traditional communities, um, that um, peripheral economic activity often grounds itself around um, cultural activities. So we are relaunching a Black arts, cultural, culture, and healing space on 7th Street, um, which we will be bringing to, if you will, the market that is our Black um, arts operators at 50% of market rate because of the rate of investment that folks are um, um, agreeing to when they invest in EB Prec. And handing over this space to them to really revive a revenue base that um, West Oakland has been deprived of for so many generations. And we're also using this project to galvanize more capital for the corridor because we recognize there's so much more need than one project to provide um, uh, uh, owned permanent commercial space for black operators, artists, and small businesses in Oakland that they often are not afforded in other areas of Oakland, right? So East Oakland is, is making its bid to revitalize itself. Um, downtown is revitalizing itself. 
and there's somebody that's got to take um, some some lead in West Oakland for West Oakland to revitalize itself. Mm, wow, that's incredible. So it's basically going to be a black owned mixed business space. And I also read that you guys are going to have a restaurant and bar, cafe and juice bar. Um, in addition yeah, to the art and healing. Yeah, that's the rough plan right now. Um, we're closing escrow in a couple of weeks and we'll start our next stage of uh, values building and community engagement. And obviously, ultimately, the end result will be in dialogue with those. But that is what we sketched out in our architect plans and in our um, in our um, in our, our construction plans. <laughs> um, so yes, yes, that's so beautiful, and it really touches on so many different disciplines too because you'll have chefs at the restaurant service workers um mixologists it and then people can also go there and have a community space to build relationships and um get healing from the art as well yeah yeah um, the one of the weird challenges we're trying to figure our way through is the bottom floor is pretty low ceiling, so on one side and high ceiling on the other. So we're trying to figure out how to configure all of these intentions into the space, which we haven't really cracked that nut yet. So um, hopefully our next stage of community conversations and really looking at the space in a practical sense, we can figure out what that means for what um what capacities the physical space can hold do we need to expand the construction budget and bring the ceiling you know we're just trying to figure our way through what that looks like for um what folks actually need um all along that corridor and what's the timeline for this um we're closing escrow it looks like what's today september 20th we have about 10 we're about 10 days out we're closing escrow Wow. And what that means is one year from now, our resident owners will be taking possession. And then one year from that date, after we give them runway to um, um, do a owner occupied um, remodeling budget, after we help build out their business plans, because we look to incubate more co-ops, right? Um, then one year from that, they will be launching to the public. So we've got a two year timeline um, during which we feel like it is perfectly reasonable and actually absolutely necessary to stay engaged in programming and activities um, leading up to that two year window where folks are uh, given wings to fly. And I say that because, you know, it's all very vertiginous getting from here to there. So, yeah. Right now, you can to make people a part of that nowness, um, doing education around it, yeah. Um, yeah. sharing the architectural plan so that people can be dreaming, but also yeah. like giving their advice of how are the concrete logistics going to work? What will their yeah. role be within yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you were talking a bit about. 
um, the collective agency and resilience that's like already rooted in Oakland and that people have already laid that path down. And I'm curious to know what is the current state of Oakland? Do you feel like that energy is still heavily within it? Has it depleted? Well, you know, Oakland has um, always been kind of a funny place um, with its uh, history of radical organizing and its clear vision for Black, Brown, and Native folks in the Bay Area. And because of that power, there's always been kind of a scrum in the city among organizations who want to um, leverage that sort of symbolic historical power and legitimacy. So um, unity and um, um, people who are awakened have always been awakened to our potential as Africans in America live here. And as a result, there are beautiful, amazing visionary opportunities here. And if you want to use a COINTELPRO word, the provocateurs have always been here too, where you see some of the most beautiful, amazing things dissipated through posturing and ego and, um, you know, um, cultural jostling or something like that. So it's the good, the bad, and the ugly here. But I swear to God, you function in this field for a year, you're going to learn everything you need to know. And then you can take it to other places like Baltimore and enliven them through what you learned in this field. So mm -hmm. um, this is the most live organizing field I've ever seen. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel that energy from all of the Oakland collectives and organizations and people that I've connected with. Um, so for my last question, how do you envision a changed Oakland or a changed world if you want to go even broader? Um, let's go with Oakland. <laughs> maybe the Alameda County, maybe the Northern California region. Let's just do that right now. Um, <laughs> um, I envision um, us really becoming a standard bearer for how to divest your capital and transform um, in service to community-led transformations. Um, I really think that we can become the model for cities nationwide, really, um, for how to rebuild disinvested communities. Um, and we, we've helped uh, start a few projects both across the nation and even one internationally in Quebec. Um, I really believe that um, our land and housing fund can become a conduit um, for the acceleration and duplication of many, many more black and brown led projects. If you look at other organizations across our city, they are adopting EBPREC strategy in whole or part very, very quickly, right? There's talk of transforming one of our most notorious housing projects um, Acorn housing projects into a cooperative. There are folks every day, young folks and old folks looking for how to change their um, capitalist 
one-to-one -one exchange business into a cooperative and transition it to worker owner, right? And so I believe that EBPREC's existence and all the work that came before it is really demonstrating the fire and the potential of chucking this whole one-to-one -one individual accomplishment and uh, uh, vision and knowing that collective economic action is our only way back to a hold future together. Yes, thank you. That's beautiful. And I'm so glad that you guys are collecting all of these educational materials and being really transparent about your process because I really do see this as a model for the future, especially in urban environments that are becoming um, so saturated with those that are not from here. Um, so I'm excited to see how we can re-envision land ownership and property ownership outside of just the hands of faceless developers. <laughs> Thank you so much, Noni. Thank you for having me, Ebony. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I'm on a mission to get these little known solutions out to as many people as possible. So please help me by sharing, leaving a like, and a review. If you would like to stay in the loop about future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast or my newsletter at cooperativejournal.com. Because I didn't say save the world, I said change the world, improve it, make it better than we find it.